in our sixth sermon today of the God of series. And today we are talking about the God of victory. God of victory. And here's what we have on tap today. Our theology is this. God will have his victory over every enemy that comes against him. God will have his victory over every enemy that comes against him. Our application today is this. We know that sin, death, and the devil will not endure before God, and we shall rejoice. We know that sin, death, and the devil will not endure before God, and we shall rejoice. And our prayer today is this. God, for the victories we've seen and those yet to come, we rejoice and boast in you. When we talk about, uh, when we talk about our theology being that God will have his victory over every enemy that comes against him, I think that's something that probably like we sing about. Like, uh, it's something as Christians that we've talked about, something as Christians that maybe we're familiar with. We, we say that God is uh, victorious. And a lot of times I think we talk about it from the standpoint of kind of what we're going through you know, um, or our personal experience, or God's going to give you victory over that. That's kind of the language I hear a lot or see a lot on Facebook. God's going to give you victory over that. But when we're talking about this victory, and today specifically, we're talking about God's victory over sin, death, and the devil, these things that have happened or will happen, and that we can put our confidence in God for those things. In Genesis chapter 3, backing up, sorry, in Genesis chapter 2, God has placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he has told them in the center, or the Bible tells us in the center of the Garden of Eden was the tree of the knowledge and, uh, of good and evil and the tree of life. And God tells Adam and Eve, he says, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of it, you will certainly die or you will surely die. That's Genesis 2.17. Now, what's funny about Hebrew, you might not find it funny, but I'm going to give you a little bit really quickly. What's funny about Hebrew is that whenever it wants to emphasize something, it repeats it. So technically, Genesis 2.17 doesn't say in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Technically, it says in the day you eat of it, die, die. Okay? We, we just feel that's a little bit redundant. So we're like, you're certainly dead if you're dead, dead. You know? And so in English, we say you will surely die. Uh, even though in the Hebrew, it's in the day you eat of it, you will die, die. A funnier one, if you just want to know about this, uh, Genesis 14, Abraham has just gone to battle. He's just chased some bad guys away. And the Bible says, probably your translation will say Betuam or tar pits, that the enemy fell into Betuam pits or tar pits. In the Hebrew, it's literally pit pits. The bad guys were running away and they fell into pits, but not just any pits, the pittiest of all the pits, you know? And so like uh, Hebrew language does that a lot. I just... I just wish they would leave it alone. Like, that's hilarious to me. Let's just, let's just put pit pits in there, you know, and let people figure it out, you know. Was it really tar pits? I don't know. It was just the pittiest of all the pits in the area. So God tells uh, Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat of it, you will die. In Genesis 3, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent is there. He deceives Eve. And then Eve hands some of the food, the fruit to her husband who eats it, and now they've both realize they're naked and uh, they're ashamed and they go and they hide from God and they make clothing for themselves. And then God shows up and he addresses Adam and he addresses Eve and then he addresses the devil, the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, he says this, God says this to the serpent. He says, I will put hatred between you, that's the serpent, the devil, and the woman. So I'm going to put hatred between you, the devil, and the woman. I'm going to put hatred between your offspring and her offspring. And he, singular, speaking of one offspring, he will bruise your head or crush your head, and you will crush or bruise his heel. 
So this is traditionally considered the very first like spiritual reference of Christ in the Bible. And it's this idea that there would be an offspring, that there would be a descendant of Eve who would ultimately crush Satan's head. And I think we go, yeah, you know, like, right, you know, and, and we, we have this idea, we have this kind of, yes, I want, I want the devil to be defeated, I want the devil to be crushed, but this idea of the head being crushed uh, as, as an enemy of God, this idea that the enemies of God, that their heads will be crushed, it doesn't just occur here, it's actually kind of throughout the Bible. Probably the one that we are all most familiar with is the story of David and Goliath. In 1 Samuel 16, David's brothers are hanging out uh, at war. Okay, I don't know if you hang out at war, but there are these three, three of his brothers are hanging out. And what's happened is the Philistine army, the bad guys are on one side of the valley and the Israelite army is on the other side of the valley. And the Philistines said, look, instead of a whole bunch of bloodshed, let's do this. We'll send our best warrior. You send your best warrior and they'll fight. And whoever wins is the winner. That way we're not killing everybody. And so the Philistines send their best warrior. It's a guy named Goliath. The Bible tells us that he was a, a, a giant, right? Uh, it estimates that he was about nine feet, nine inches tall. That's a big guy. It says that he was a warrior from his youth. You know, like this is a deadly dude. Like, you know, this is like, this is like, you know, in every 80s movie ever when you go down the alley and there's the group of rough kids or whatever, Goliath was the group, you know, like it's just, it's just him. You walk down the alley and there's this youth Goliath, you know, and he's just like, he's a thug. And so he's like, hey, he goes, send your strongest guy. Well, David is not at war yet. He's too young, and he's not at war, and he shows up with some bread and some goat cheese for his brothers. He drops that off. Goliath comes out like he has for 40 days and says, I defy the armies of the living God. Come against me. And for 40 days, no one from the Israelite side has moved. No one's moved. Every day, Goliath comes out and says, who's going to fight me? And every day, the Israelites are like, ah, oh, you know, I mean, my knee, I kind of strained it or something yesterday. I'm not feeling very well. I might be coming down with a cold. I'm not sure, right? So for 40 days, whatever it is, they've made excuses. And now David shows up. And Goliath says, who's going who's gonna to come against me? I come against the God of your armies. I defy your God. And David goes, whoa, who, who's going to deal with this? Long story short, David goes, I'll take care of it. And he grabs five rocks, and he has his slingshot, and he goes down there. And this slingshot, kids, is not like the rubber band kind of one. This is a, a little pouch of leather with two long straps. And you put the rock in there, and you swing it around, and you let it fly. And so listen to their insults. This is some really great trash talk. And so Goliath says to David, this is right here in 1 Samuel 16. Goliath says to David, he goes, am I just a dog? that you come against me with a boy and stones? Like, he's like, what, what am I, just a dog you're trying to tra chase away? And David says to Goliath, he goes, today I will hand your flesh to the birds of the air to eat. Like, he's like, today I'm going to kill you. Like, and, and so David puts the rock in his sling, and he winds it up, and he lets it fly. By the way, the Bible says that just the spearhead of Goliath's spear was 15 pounds. 15-pound spearhead. Like, I mean, that's gonna hurt. That's like, you know, probably gonna leave a mark, stitches or something. So David whips the rock into Goliath's head and it sinks into his head and Goliath falls down dead, right? Another picture of God not allowing his enemies to stand and he crushes the head. It's a picture. It's not the only one. In case you're thinking, Ryan, this is a little thin. You're kind of making a big stretch here, you know, like one text, you know, that he's crushing the head of the serpent. And now David, you know, crushed the head of Goliath. Okay, I'll give you that, but maybe. Listen, in Judges 4, 
Uh, I, I would love to tell you more about this story. We just don't have time to read the whole thing. You want to talk more about it Wednesday, we can. But there's Deborah. She's the prophetess. And then there's this bad guy named Sisera, right? Uh, in my head, I don't know why. He's like one of those really old-timey villains, you know, in black and white with a long, greasy mustache, you know, or something. But Sisera uh, is kind of this classic villain, and he has been defeated in battle. Now, the other main character in this story right now is a woman named Jael. And so uh, Sisera is losing in battle, so he's fleeing. He's on foot now, and he's running away, and he's fleeing in battle, and he's tired, and he's exhausted. And he comes to the tent of Jael, this woman. Her husband is away, probably at war. Uh, and, and Sisera comes and she's like, she recognizes that he's the bad guy. She knows. She goes, are you tired? Are you thirsty? And he's like, yes. And so she's like, come on in. And she offers him something to drink. She gives him a bowl of milk, the Bible says. So she gives him a bowl of milk to drink. And he's like, man, I'm tired. So she lays him down and she covers him with a blanket. And as soon as the dude's asleep, this enemy of God, Jael goes and grabs a tent peg and a hammer and drives the tent peg through his head into the ground. Straight up kills the dude, crushes his head, right? Enemy of God, head crushed, pitcher, okay? The good guys show up at Jael's tent. She's like, you looking for Sisera? <laughs> He's here. <laughs> Pulls back the blanket. There he is, nailed to the ground, you know? Like, right? Um, so here's the other thing. Judges 9, there's this guy named Abimelech. Now, Abimelech is the son of Gideon. We talked about Gideon last week. And Abimelech has become a bad guy. He's, he's become an idol worshiper, and he's a bad guy now. And Abimelech is just trying to, like, exercise power over the land. One of the things he does is he goes into a city that is resistant to his power. Abimelech's not a good guy, not following God. Goes into the city that's resistant to his power. All the people flee into the tower and lock themselves in. And Abimelech cuts down a whole bunch of branches, puts them around the tower, and sets them on fire, and burns the tower to the ground and kills everybody inside. Well, Abimelech moves to the next town that's resisting him, and he has the same thing done. And he cuts all the branches, and he lays them around the tower, and he's about to come up and light it. And there's a woman up on the top of the tower that just kind of pushes one of the rocks off the top of the tower. It falls down and crushes Abimelech's skull. Straight up crushes his head. He does not die quite yet. <laughs> he looks to his soldier, not making it up, right there in Judges 9. Uh, it, he looks... He looks to his soldier and he goes, drag me out of here and kill me so they won't say a woman killed me. Like he's so embarrassed, <laughs> right? But this woman, she just shoved the rock off the tower, crushed his head. Another picture of that, all right? Psalm 68, Psalm 68 verse 21 says this, surely God will shatter the heads of his enemies and crush the hairy crowns of those who resist him. Those of you who are bald are like, man, <laughs> I'm so glad I'm bald because it's the hairy crowns that he crushes, you know? This idea, this picture of God crushing the heads of his enemies, getting victory over his enemies. In Matthew 27, verse 33, it talks about Jesus' crucifixion. And it says that Jesus, Jesus, wow, that was a weird emphasis. Jesus was led to a place called Golgotha. And the Bible says that was called the place of the skull. I want you to catch this. Jesus is taken to the place of the skull. And is there crucified. And his blood and his resurrection overthrew the power of sin. And he was victorious over death. He came out of the tomb empty. We just sang about it, right? He left the tomb empty. He, came, he, he, he left the tomb by his own power. So here again, Christ at the place of the skull is defeating the enemy. 
you and I have enemies, but we serve a God who is victorious over those enemies. We can have confidence in it. We can rest in that. God will have victory over every enemy that comes against him, no question. Here's our application today. Listen to this. We know that sin, death, and the devil will not endure before God, and we shall rejoice. We know that sin, death, and the devil will not endure before God, and we shall rejoice. Christ has already overthrown sin's power. You're in Romans 6, I hope. Pick up with me here. I'm going to start in verse 14, and we're going to back up in a little bit, but right now I'm going to start in verse 14 of chapter 6 of Romans. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient servants, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, whether uh, sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that once though you were slaves to sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness." Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. You ever hear a Christian say something along the lines of, man, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I I think I understand the sentiment, but the theology is not great. Because from God's estimation, you are not a sinner saved by grace. From God's estimation, you are a holy saint. That's why Paul begins each of his letters to the saints, to the holy ones in Ephesus, to the holy ones in Corinth. And then he deals with all their sin, all the things they're doing wrong. But the view that God has of the people who have put faith in him is that they've been set free from sin. Romans 8.1, two chapters later, tells us, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do, weakened as it was, God did in sending Christ his son. You have been set free from sin's power. It is no longer master over you. It no longer, you're no longer its servant. I imagine that there are some in this room that, that feel like this sin that they have. That maybe you're embarrassed about it. Maybe you share it with your prayer group. Maybe you've never shared it with anybody, whatever. And, and you just think, man, I just can't seem to get a handle on it. I just can't seem to get free from it. And you just kind of, now right now you're, you're probably thinking of like all the big ones. Uh, and I don't think there are like big ones, but we, we think that way, right? And you're like, well, I'm not murdering anymore. And so that's good. And you're like thinking through the things, right? And you're, you're going, man, what are, what are the things, what are the things that I'm struggling with? But, but think about this in terms of your impatience, you know? Think about this in terms of, of not showing someone the, the same grace that Jesus has shown to you. Think about uh, think about maybe um, the, the unkind words that you have or the fact that you're easily angered. James chapter 1 tells us that man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And so you're thinking, man, I'm angry all the time, you know. And so think about these things. Think about, uh, for me, it's fear. And you're going, man, I don't know, is, how is fear sin? Because ultimately what it boils down to for me is that I'm not trusting God. And so sometimes fear wakes me up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I wonder, like, how, how are we going to get through the month? Or how is this time going to be okay? Or what if I'm a failure at everything I do? Or what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And I have anxiety or fear at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. And you're going, yeah, but that's just, that's just how I'm wired. And let's just agree right now to quit saying that's just how I'm wired. And just start saying that, like, listen, this thing has no mastery over me anymore. It feels like it, though, sometimes, doesn't it? That it has mastery over us. 
I will tell you that from the time that I was probably 17 to the time I was probably 22, I felt like pornography had mastery over me. I felt like it owned me. I just did. I felt like I couldn't escape it. But I was a believer at that point. I was a young man. I had put my faith in Christ as a kid. I knew I wanted to preach from the time that I was four. I was in church. I was in Bible studies. I was leading Bible studies. I knew the scripture. And yet what my view of it was, my view, because it's the view that I'd been raised with, my view was try harder. In fact, every prayer group I was ever part of, every accountability group I was ever part of, the advice that always kept coming back to me was try harder. Anybody in here ever get tired of trying harder to fight your sin? Anybody ever in here just exhausted because you keep trying and you keep failing and you keep trying and you keep failing? And let's just be honest for just a moment. Those of us who, are, who, are, who will say something like, man, I've made it three weeks. I've put three weeks between me and this sin. And you start to feel confident and then you're like, man, I've made it a month. Man, I've made it six months. I've made it a year. And then you fail again. You feel like you've just lost everything. Anybody ever keep track how long you've made it? Golly, I hate that. I remember talking to a group of young men about some different sins in their lives, and, and I asked them that question. I said, how long has it been? Some of you already have the number in your head. You know how long it was since you last yelled at your kids in a way that was demeaning and dishonoring of the Lord. You, you know the last time that you didn't treat your spouse with grace. You know, and you're going, man, I've made it a week, <laughs> you know, on the way here to church this morning, or whatever you're thinking, you know, and you're like, and, and, and we, we think about those things. Here's what we don't tend to think about. Those things no longer have mastery over us. What we don't tend to think about anymore is what Micah just said just a moment ago and just sang about is that Christ has set us free from sin's power. What we don't tend to think about is Galatians 5.16, which says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. What we don't tend to think about is that the Bible never tells the Christian, try harder. The Bible tells us Christ has dealt with it. Rest in Jesus. Trust Christ. Like, it isn't Ryan that's going to save Ryan's life. It isn't Ryan that's going to slay the battle of sin. It's Jesus who has already done those things. You, you are loved by God. You are forgiven by God. If you're a person of faith today, you are called righteous, and you are called holy, and you are called sanctified, and you are called chosen, and you are called beloved, and you are called uh, saint. If I didn't say saint in this little section, I know I said it a minute ago, but like you're, you, are, you are loved and adored by God. Sin is no longer your master. Christ is. You are no longer servants of sin. You are servants of God. This is the reality of what Christ has done on the cross. And when we wake up in the morning and we go, man, I just feel like if I can just escape my sin today, it's done. The chains are broken. You've been set free. Instead, wake up tomorrow and say, man, I am a servant of God today. You're not a servant of sin. Christ has gotten victory over sin. Christ has defeated its power. Look at this. Pick up with me in... Uh, six, five, I guess. I mean, really, we need to talk about chapter six, chapter seven, and chapter eight, all of it, but Romans chapter six, verse five, for if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, who we were without Jesus, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin would be brought to nothing, would be brought or rendered powerless so that we would no longer be enslaved to sins. For everyone who has died, and by the way, we have died with Christ to sin. For everyone who has died has been set free from sin. You have been set free from sin. Sin has been rendered 
powerless. I understand, I do, that it feels like it owns you, but it doesn't. And let's just be honest, sometimes we can all understand this, sometimes how we feel about something isn't the truth of the matter, and in this case, that is absolutely how it is. You may feel like sin has mastery over you, but the truth of the matter is it does not. Christ has set you free. You have died with Christ. You have died to sin. You have been set free from sin to righteousness. You have been set free from sin to righteousness. We have victory over sin because of what Christ has done. Christ has gained victory over sin. Death. We know that sin, death, and the devil will not endure before God, and we shall rejoice. Flip over, if you would, now to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to begin in uh, verse 25. For Christ must reign until he has put uh, all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jump down now to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Here's what he just said. Quick pause. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. That means this body that you're seeing standing right here in front of you, that, that, that fleshy body that's sitting there in that chair holding that book or that Bible or that coffee, that is not what enters into heaven. This doesn't get to heaven. We get new bodies. These are perishable bodies. We get imperishable bodies. These are mortal bodies. We get immortal bodies. These are temporary bodies. We get eternal bodies, okay? And so verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Sleep here, Paul means die. He's just being really, I don't know, dramatic about it or something. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must be swallowed up by immortality. When the perishable body puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on the immortality, then comes about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Check this out. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then comes about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? What is the sting of death? It tells us right here. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory. If you have lost someone that you loved, if you've lost someone that you've loved, you've felt that sting, right? We know from Romans chapter 5, we know from Romans chapter 3, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That's Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. We know from Romans 5 that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and now all have sinned, therefore all will die, that death is part of the sin system, but the last enemy that will be defeated is death. Death, you and I, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, it is appointed for men once to die, and then comes the judgment. The odds are really, really high that we're all going to die. Really, really high percentage chance of that. The exception being, okay, the exception being that either Christ returns, 
or you end up being like one of the two guys, Enoch or Elijah in the Bible who didn't die. Okay? Two guys in the Bible who didn't die. That's a really small percentage out of the billions and billions and billions and millions of people who have lived, right? So like really great chance you and I are going to die. We don't know when that's going to happen. If it happens in the next 30 seconds, I just want you to know that Jesus is worth knowing. Wouldn't that have been really great if I had died just then? Like, like that would have been the last thing I'd ever said. I fall down and you just think I'm being silly at first, you know? You're like, man, he's really trying to drive that point home. Everybody waits an awkward amount of time and I don't move. Then you realize, hey, he's dead. And then you'd be like, right before our pastor died? He's... Anyway, it'd be a great story. I'm sorry it didn't work out. <laughs> we, we don't know. We don't know when we're going to die, okay? We don't know when this, when this life gets... Some of y'all are like, man, he is dark. You have no idea. <laughs> come, come hang with me sometime one-on-one. Uh, and, and so we don't know when this is coming to an end, but hear this, all right? So our loved ones that we've lost, our loved ones that have already gone before us, our loved ones who, who name the name of Jesus and have died already, they are in spirit in the presence of the Lord, but not in body yet. They haven't received their new body yet. First Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Now here's what's really interesting. There's a hint at kind of what that's like. In Revelation, it says that there are some souls who are gathered around God, and they're like, how much longer? Like, you know, when is this all going to wrap up? When is this all going to come to an end? He goes, just a little bit longer, right? And, and so there comes a point, though, when death is swallowed up in victory. We know from Isaiah 25 that death is swallowed up in victory when Christ returns, that death is finally, completely, and ultimately defeated when Christ returns, that there's no more hunger, there's no more tears, there's no more death, there's no more dying, there's no more sickness. Death will come to an end. It's, death isn't the end of us because we'll close our eyes in death and open them in glory. But death as an entity and as, as a servant of sin, wreaking havoc and just, uh, just wreaking, wrecking havoc. Wreaking is a stinky thing, but maybe it stinks too. I don't know. I'm, wow, just not on my, I don't know words today. So death, wrecking havoc, uh, just across all people, Okay. Like this is, this is, this will come to an end and we can rejoice in that. We, we can know, we can know, Micah mentioned it last week that there were, uh, uh, there are saints in Afghanistan who have said that we know that our time is drawing near and that we're going to be dead within a few weeks and a lot of them have died. There's an article, I don't know if you saw it this week, of a, of a, a person, a missionary who in the States was on the phone with their missionary friend there. Um, as their friend was killed. Um, and they were like, people are coming in, um, were, people are breaking in, and then they hear the shots, and then they hear the screams. There was also another testimony this week of a church in Afghanistan that has gone from 350 people to 2,500 people in the last week um, because people are recognizing that the church is real. Uh, they, are, they are facing death, and they can face it with rejoicing in their heart because they know that God gets the victory over death. And that just as Christ's tomb was empty, so shall every one of ours be. As Christ was raised from the dead, so shall we be raised from the dead. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve loss. But like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Our grief is punctuated with rejoicing because we know that every tomb, every grave, 
will be vacated. And everyone who has named the name of Jesus will stand before the God of glory and will be clothed in new imperishable bodies and eternal righteousness. God has gotten, has gotten, wow, I need food. Anybody just throw something at me, hit it, see if it'll land in my mouth. My blood sugar's low or something. God has gotten victory over sin. And death is next on the list. It's coming. He will get victory over death. And then he will get victory over the devil. The devil already knows that his time is short. The devil already knows that his time is drawing to a close. The Bible says that, uh, that in, in Revelation, I believe it's 12, that because the time is, is drawing to a close, that he's become more fierce. Uh, it, it's like a cornered animal, like this cornered predator. And he just has decided that if he's going down, he's going to take down as many people as he can with him. Revelation 16.20, sorry, Romans 16.20. I have a note in here from Revelation as well. But Romans 16.20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. Uh, this is first century. This is not a, Rome is not a great city for Christians to be in in the first century. Christians are being put to death. They're being fed to the animals. They're being burned at the stake. And, um, and not only that, but there's a huge division in the church in Rome, and Paul is addressing all these things. But one of the kind of final statements he encourages them with, right before he says, and all my friends say hi to you and all these people, Paul does that at a lot of the end of his letters, John says hello, and don't forget about Billy, and Samantha said to say hi, and, you know, like, it's crazy, like, I, I don't know, I mean, I get it, they didn't have, like, email, they weren't texting, but, like, Paul just, like, here's 40 people that wanted to say hello to you, just wanted you to know, you know, and, like, that was really nice of Paul, and now we have a record of all those people who wanted to be friendly and say hello, um, but one of the last things he says right before that is, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, this is an encouragement, this, this is something that's hopeful to the church, that we can know that this enemy who is very real and very active and very present in our world. In fact, Ephesians 6, Paul has, is reminding the church that our enemies are not each other. We are not enemies with flesh and blood. Our enemies are the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Like we are fighting an actual, true, real spiritual battle every single day of our lives. When people say, man, the devil is attacking me. Uh, first of all, the word devil just means adversary. Just know that, yeah, he is. <laughs> he is. Now, some, some stuff is, is probably not. I think we, we, we say everything is him. I mean, like if you burn your cake, you know, we're like, oh, man, the devil really trying to get me today. But like the, the reality is we have an enemy who wants to kill us, right? We have an enemy that wants to see us dead. And it is a spiritual battle that we are facing. And there will come a day when Christ returns and Satan is cast into hell. Now, I want to I dispel a myth here. Hell is not the devil's home. Okay? Hell is judgment for the devil. All those old school renaissance like Russian paintings and stuff where it shows people being tormented in hell by the devil and the demons. Terrible theology. None of those are true. Uh, the hell was created, according to Matthew 25, by God for the devil and the demons. It's their place of judgment. It's their place of torment, okay? And so anybody who rejects God, like the devil has, receives the same judgment the devil receives. 
But there is coming a point, Revelation 20, when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire along with all who followed him, and he will finally have victory over it all. God will have victory over it all. And then this is what happens. Check this out. Revelation chapter 19, this is what happens after uh, all of the enemies of God. This is after one of uh, three battles in Revelation. But after the enemies of God are destroyed, this is the, the response. And then in Revelation 20, uh, we'll see kind of the final defeat of Satan as well. But listen to this, Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immort immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So here's what's happened in chapter 18. Uh, the enemy of God has been cast down, and the Bible says cast down into a smoking pit, and the fire of this pit goes up forever and ever, and then all the people who are, who are believers, who have put faith in Christ, are standing around the throne of God going, praise you, glory, thank you, God, you have shown yourself to be just, you have shown yourself to be righteous, you have shown yourself to be holy, you have cast down the enemy. Listen, th this is coming this moment is coming when God will have victory over every enemy who has ever opposed him. And then you and I and all those who have gone before us will gather around the throne and our glorified bodies going, worthy God are you who is just and who does what he says he would do and who ultimately has crushed the head of the enemy. It's coming. So how do we take all this? Let's wrap this up in the last few minutes here. That sin that you're ashamed of, that sin that you think defeats you. We can talk about this. In fact, I would love, uh, you know that you can actually like talk to me. I like that. Um, I, I'm, I'm probably not one to approach you because I'm kind of, I kind of like stay in my own bubble, you know? Um, but, but you have questions like this stuff, man, I'd love to talk about it. But here's the thing, and I want us to catch this. That sin that you think is controlling you, if, you're, if you are a believer, if you've put your faith in Christ, the reality is that sin does not control you anymore. It is not your master, okay? And I would love to shift that perspective for you a little bit and talk to you some more about that, but the reality is that when Christ's blood was shed, he overthrew sin's power and has ripped you, ripped you from slavery to sin and brought you into the lavish a uh, place where you are now a slave of righteousness and a slave of holiness. And you're thinking, man, I can't do it though, Ryan. And I want you to know that's a great place to start. You can't, but Christ has. And maybe, maybe the problem has been that you have tried way too long to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and way too long. Try, you, you, I mean, I'm telling you, like we do this as Christians to other Christians all the time. Somebody comes to us and says, man, I've just been a real jerk to my wife this week. Well, try to say three nice things. Try to be better. Instead of saying, listen, Christ has rescued you even from that. That has no power over you anymore. Let's bring Christ back into the conversation. Christ has set you free from the power of sin. Death, whether it's the loss of a loved one that you were mourning or whether it's the fear that you have of death, I need you to know this. Every grave will be emptied. I need you to know that because Christ was raised from the dead, so shall we also be raised from the dead. And I need you to know that these perishable bodies that seem to just ache more and more with every year that passes, and it gets harder to read things, and, you know, like joints hurt, and you just, 
anybody, anybody, when you wake up in the morning, those first like 15 steps that you put your feet on the ground, you're like, why do my feet hurt? Like I was literally laying in bed all night. Like I just, why, why do my feet hurt me? You know, that's coming to an end. Death is coming to an end. These bodies will be made new. We will stand before God new. Rejoice in that. And then the enemy, the devil, who is a real and viable and powerful enemy, knows that his days are numbered, knows that Christ will crush his head, knows that that's coming to an end, know that his reign, his reign is almost undone. And we can rejoice in that. When people say, man, how do you look at this world and have any hope? And, and I know this is cheesy. I really do wish that there was a cooler way to say this, but I've heard this said a lot through the years, and I just want to share it with you really quickly now, and it's super, super easy to remember. But we're on the winning side. That's it. We're on the winning side. I, I, I truly wish that there was a super cool way to say that. I was telling the first service, like almost like Shakespearean, poetically kind of, you know, like you put an E on the end of every word or something to make it sound fancier or wear one of those big ruffled collars when you say it. But like, like we're on the winning side. We're on the winning side. And whatever comes today and whatever we face tomorrow, ultimately, ultimately doesn't win. Because God wins. God's the victor. He has overthrown sin. He will abolish the shadow of death. And he will cast the devil into the lake of fire. And those things you can celebrate. Those are things that you can rejoice in. Even in the midst of whatever trials you're facing this day. Our God is a God of victory. That brings us to our prayer. God, for the victories we've seen and those yet to come, we rejoice and boast in you. God, for the victories we've seen and for those yet to come, we rejoice and boast in you. Take just a moment to pray that, would you? Thank God for the victory he's given you over sin. Thank God that... We don't need to be fearful of death. Thank God that the enemy that we have and the devil will be cast down. God, for the victories we've seen and those yet to come, we rejoice and boast in you. Take just a moment to pray those things. God, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you that you are a victorious God. We thank you, God, that though this world and the enemy in this world may take our life in this moment, that ultimately, God, death 
will be conquered. The graves will be emptied. Satan will be cast down and we will stand before you on the winning side. We'll stand before you, the God who saves, the God who gets victory, the God who casts down his enemy, the God who crushes the heads of those opposed to him. And we will, we will stand with you, God, um, in glory. God, thank you that you have set us free from sin's power. Thank you that death cannot hold us. Thank you that Satan cannot overthrow us. And God, let those be the things that we rejoice in today as we worship, as we leave this place.